The existence of evil in this world has caused many people to doubt the existence of an all-knowing, all-powerful, and all-good God. If God were all-good and all-powerful, it seems like bad things would not exist or happen in our world. Yet there are several concepts that can help show how the existence of evil is compatible and in some ways likely with the existence of an all-good and all-powerful God. In this episode, I will discuss several theodicies, which are answers that theists have given to try to show why God allows evil. I will provide answers to the logical and evidential problems of evil, and I will mention several talking points that can be taken from these answers for use in everyday evangelism and apologetics. So I hope you'll stick around and find out several reasons why we think that the God of the Bible allows bad things to happen. Welcome back, everyone. In this episode, we are going to be talking about theodicies, uh, which, if you aren't familiar with the term, theodicies are answers that people try to provide uh, for the problem of evil. So in this episode, uh, like I mentioned in the last one, you know, in the last episode, I talked about types of the problem of evil, and we talked about the evidential problem of evil, we talked about the logical problem of evil, and I didn't really provide any answers to those I just talked about um, how they've been discussed by uh, professional philosophers um, just to familiarize everybody with a lot of the issues that are going into this debate. Uh, Well, in this lecture, I'm going to be talking about some answers to those problems. And uh, I hope that, uh, you know, if you're a believer or if you're someone who's looking uh, to reconcile the existence of evil with the existence of the God of theism, that you will find some some um, some beginnings of answers in this lecture. You know, as always, this is a more of a, a, a podcast and a video series for beginners. It's a little on the beginner to the intermediate side. So, um, you know, there's a lot more that goes into the debate, but uh, today I was just going to present some basic answers to these problems. So, yeah, like we do at the beginning of all these, I like to present a Bible passage, and I talked about this one more in the last lecture, so if you're interested in me talking about this in a little more detail, um, I, I would uh, suggest you go to the last lecture on the problem of evil and check that out. But our verse for this lecture, uh, just like the last one, is Revelation 21, verses 3 through 4, and it says, Then I heard a loud voice from the throne, Look, God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more, because the previous things have passed away. So yeah, I talked about this uh, in more detail in the last lecture, uh, but I like this passage as more of a positive passage when thinking about the problem of evil. The Bible says that although, you know, the Bible (laughs) talks about evil all the time, it not only describes historical events with a lot of evil, but also talks about their origin of uh, moral evil in the universe and all sorts of things. 
So there's so many passages you could pull up if you're talking about the problem of evil. But I like this passage because it says that although God, you know, it indicates that although God is allowing evil to occur today and in the past, uh, one day he will eliminate all evil and uh, remove suffering for those uh, who get to live in the new heavens and new earth. So uh, I I like that passage. And again, if you want to hear me talk about it more, go to the last lecture on the problem of evil. Um, our questions for reflection uh, for for this lecture is just a few of them, kind of short questions, but some questions to get you thinking. I present questions for reflection at the beginning of all these, and if you'd like to answer these in the comment section of a video or send me an email uh, if you're listening to this on a podcast, uh, you can get you can contact me through my academic website, bkylekelts.com. So I'd love to hear back from you guys, uh, whether it's feedback on on the series or 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 answers to these questions, I'd love to hear from you. But uh, here's our first question. Is evil some necessary aspect of reality? I.e., is it possible for there to be a world with no evil? Okay. Second question. Has God promised to eliminate evil? (laughs) You probably already know the answer to that. And the third question. Which theodicy do you find the most compelling? So hopefully you'll have answers to all these uh, in this lecture. All right. So like I said, uh, what we want to do is talk about theodicies. Um, in the last lecture, we talked about the problem of evil, and I have that defined as the difficulty of reconciling the existence of suffering and other evils in the world with the existence of God. I got that definition from William Lawhead in uh, my Intro to Philosophy book that I use for my classes titled The Philosophical Journey. Um, also, we talked, not only did we talk about the problem of evil, but we talked about two specific types of the problem of evil. The logical problem of evil that I have uh, defined as the formulation of the problem of evil that attempts to show that given the existence of evil, theism is illogical. Uh, And then we talked about the evidential problem of evil, which I have defined as the formulation of the problem of evil that attempts to show that given the amount of evil in the world, theism is unreasonable. And if you remember, uh, what we were talking about with these two main formulations of the problem of evil is that the logical problem of evil tries to argue that theism, monotheism, the idea that God is all good, all knowing, all powerful, yet evil exists in the world, that that is, uh, that um, if you believe all of those things all at once, you're holding to a contradiction. The evidential problem of evil is different. It just says that if, if an all good, all knowing, all powerful God existed, if there were evil in the world, you think it wouldn't be that much. But since we see a, a lot of evil in the world, the specific evidential problem that we looked at thought that you wouldn't see any um, gratuitous or uh, uh, suffering that doesn't have a purpose in the world. But since it seems like we do see a lot of that, then it is highly unlikely that God exists. So today, what I'm going to be talking about are theodicies, okay? And I have this definition from William Lawhead as well. Uh, it's, it's, I've defined a theodicy as the attempt to justify God's permitting evil to occur in the world. Okay, now I want you to know, uh, and of course I, I've said this already up front, that just, just like always, this series is not meant for an advanced audience. Uh, the, the debates and the arguments go way deeper than what I present. I'm just trying to introduce people to apologetics and all these topics really. So these, these uh, the way I, pre- I try to present it on the beginner side, but I think maybe sometimes I go to the intermediate side. But anyways, uh, I, I want you to know that um, 
in the philosophical literature today, if you were to study or at least just read uh, the literature on in the philosophy of religion in American uh, and other Western universities, uh, philosophers of religion, when talking about and studying the problem of evil, make a distinction between what's called a theodicy and a defense. Okay, a theodicy, well, a, a theodicy is is someone trying to come up with some answer to the problem of evil that basically explains, it's a really more comprehensive answer. It explains everything, it explains why God allows evil, and it and explains almost all types of evil. Okay. Uh, and philosophers of religion today distinguish a theodicy between what's called a defense. A defense doesn't try to sh- doesn't try to answer why God allows it and be really comprehensive and answer the whole thing. A defense just tries to show that at the very bare minimum, there's no logical contradiction. Okay, I think that's how most people would explain the difference. I don't want to go that deep today, but you you will notice that some of the things we're going to be talking about are labeled as defenses. So just to make you aware of that, but uh, I'm just going to basically use theodicy and defense as as synonyms today. If you hear me use either one of those terms, I'm just talking about an answer to the problem of evil. Okay, so uh, so yeah. But if you've ever heard the term theodicy or even defense, it's gonna they're both uh, attempts at answering why God allows evil. It's just that a theodicy is more comprehensive. Uh, a defense is a little bit weaker. Uh, but here's what we're going to be talking about today. So what uh, we've got about five things, five answers to the problem of evil, five theodicies that I wanted to look at. You've got the greater good defense, the free will defense, natural order defense, soul making, and skeptical theism. I wanted to talk about all five of these. Um I'm not necessarily going to be saying that one is best above the others. And honestly, I think there's some good truth to all of these. I don't think you really have to choose just one. But I wanted to go over all these because I think it's great to, to be aware that um, monotheists have been thinking about this issue for, for uh, you know, a long time, for, for uh, centuries. And, uh, and there's been answers to this that, that have been, in, uh, especially in the Christian tradition, in Western thought in general, but in the Christian tradition for centuries. So um, I wanted to make you aware of all these. And the first one we're going to talk about is the greater good defense. Okay, this is... Now, I, I saw this in the Douglas Grotheis text. If you listen to the first episode of this series, Introduction to Apologetics, you'll you'll know that... Throughout this series, I've I've loosely been following Doug Grotheis' uh, book, Christian Apologetics, and I th- I think I got this term, uh, this specific term from his book, and I thought it was interesting because I, I specialize in the study of the problem of evil, and I haven't really I didn't think that there was this one thing called the greater good defense. <laughs> it seemed to me like almost every uh, theodicy or defense involves some greater good, so I, I didn't think that the greater good defense was something set apart from other things, but uh, this is a great introduction into, I think it, it's probably more of a family of views, um, but having said that, uh, uh, it's a great introduction into what we're going to be getting into when we start looking at um, answers to the problem of evil. So I've got the greater good defense defined as, on my slide, a solution that says that God has good reasons for allowing evil to occur. If some natural or moral evil occurs, then because God is wholly good, 
God has a, had a good reason for allowing it, okay? Greater good defense is this idea that if you see an evil in the world, uh, since God is all-knowing, all-powerful, all-good, it wouldn't be there by accident. It's not like it's something that God, because God is all-powerful, it's not something that he couldn't prevent. Uh, because God is all-good, it's not something that he would allow without a good reason. So the greater good defense is just this idea that God uh, only would allow evil if uh, if he had some good reason for, for allowing it, okay? Uh, yeah, allow. There wouldn't be an evil existing in the world unless God had a good reason for allowing it. Okay. Now, I, I, what I'd like to, what I, what it seems to me like is that the free will defense would basically be a type of the um, greater good defense. But anyways, I just wanted to mention that to get you warmed up to these ideas. A lot of times we're saying in in these defenses and other um, solutions to the problem of evil that God wants this one thing in reality and and. And that provides his uh, basis for allowing certain evils. And, but you'll see how this works out. Okay, The free will defense is a major answer to the problem of evil. And you see here it's defined as a free will defense. Again, I didn't want to get into the distinction between theodicy and defense. But free will defense I have defined as the solution that moral evils occur because God wants humanity to, prof- to possess free will which is a higher good that justifies all occurrences of moral evil. Okay? Uh, the free will defense basically is saying that God allows moral evil. If you, if you uh, Hopefully you remember that distinction that we made in the last episode. I talked about natural evils and moral evils, right? Natural evils are events like thought to be bad, like hurricanes and tornadoes and viruses and natural death. Moral evil is is evil done by human free will choices. Well, the free will defense usually is aimed at trying to answer why there's moral evil in the world. And uh, this defense, I mean, it's been around in Christianity for a long time. You can trace it at least as far back as Augustine of Hippo, right? Uh, What some people call St. Augustine. Uh, He's lived in the 4th century. He's a church father and, and highly influential Christian theologian and philosopher. I've got a quote from him uh, from his work on free choice of the will. He gives a kind of a rudimentary uh, free will defense, right? So here's his quote. If human beings are good things and they cannot do right unless they so will, then they ought to have a free will without which they cannot do right. The fact that human beings could not live rightly without it was sufficient reason for God to give it. Uh, what what Augustine is getting at is that God, if God wants human beings to live good lives, and this is especially uh, this is especially a concept you find in Christianity, right? In my next lecture, and I'll mention this again, in my next lecture, I want to go over what the Bible has to say about why we think evil exists in the world. So we'll definitely be seeing this later. But in Christianity, you hear this this idea that we're all created in the image of God. Right. And uh, whether that entails like an ontological truth, like, you know, we're like God because we're essentially spiritual because we have souls or if it's like more of a occupational thing or or representative theory, you'll see all these different theories on what the image of God means. Some people think to be in the image of God means that you represent God on earth. Well, in either way, usually, you know, Christianity's teaching that we're all made in the image of God. Either way, you're going to have free will in those in those instances, and uh, 
And what the free will defense is saying is that God doesn't want to just create any old world. The world that God wants to create includes uh, that we don't have to. You don't have to specifically be a human being, like you know, uh, look like like be a mammal and, and all that. But it, at the very least, uh, Christianity is saying that um, God wants to when when God creates, He wants to have rational beings in His creation, beings that can know and love Him and 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 represent Him and being uh, righteous beings to live a good life, right? And and how could you possibly do that? How could you love God? How could you choose God? How could you choose to live a good life if you didn't have a free will? It wouldn't make sense if you're this robot that just makes these choices that are determined for you, right? So if God wants to make a, a world like that, he has to give uh, human beings, rational beings, free will, right? But what is free will? Free will is the ability to make your own choices, and that would include bad choices, right? So, um, the free will defense is basically saying that any world that God creates, right? If He wants to have free will beings in it, then it just it it's logically possible that those beings are going to do bad things. Does that make sense? I mean, I can talk about this a little bit more whenever we get back. At, at the end of this lecture, I'm going to pull up the logical problem of evil again uh, from Mackey and the evidential problem of evil from Roe. And I'm going to show you kind of how some of these theodicies work in answering those things. So I'll mention this again. But the free will defense is saying that it, it, at the very least, it's not a logical contradiction to say that evil exists and God is all good and all powerful, right? Because whether God created a world where everybody did good all day or if God created a world where people are doing bad things, in both worlds, it's logically possible that they could do evil, right? Because even if you have free will... And you're even if you're excuse me if you have free will and you're doing the right things, it's still at least logically possible that you could do the wrong thing, right? Um, and and in a world where you chose the wrong thing, it was logically possible you could have chose the right thing if you have free will. So, free will just necessarily entails the logical possibility and maybe even the likelihood of doing bad things. Okay, so if someone thinks it's a logical contradiction that God is all good, all powerful, all knowing, and evil exists, what you say is well. Uh, God wants a world with free will. Uh, God wants to create human beings in his image. So uh, that entails that doing bad things is just a, a logical possibility. Uh, the free will defense usually is is uh, used to answer why moral evil exists in the world. I have seen some philosophers go as far as saying that maybe uh, bad things happening in nature like natural evils, like hurricanes and tornadoes, is possibly the uh, also due to free will, like uh, maybe demons are causing that. Uh, we don't need to go there. Uh, but at the very least, free will uh, could answer why there's uh, moral evil in the world, right? So uh, you, oftentimes the free will defense, free will theodicy, whatever you want to call it, is, decide, is, is the uh, answer that a monotheist will bring to the table to say, this is why it's not contradictory that God allows evil, but people do bad things in the world. Okay. Um, oh, and I and I forgot to excuse me. Let me let me step back one one step and and just uh, 
and make one more point before I go on to the natural order defense. So the next thing I want to talk about is the natural order defense, which is usually the main uh, answer people give to uh, why God allows uh, natural evils. But I did want to say something here. You know, uh, maybe someone will say, well, if God's all-powerful, that means he can do anything he wants. So there doesn't seem a contradiction in saying that he could uh, make people do good things all the time. Why can't he do that and they still have free will? Uh, what we're getting at here with this free will defense is that it's a, it is a logical possibility that if you have free will that you're going to do evil, right? Um, just because God is said to be all-powerful doesn't mean he can do anything that you could utter, uh, right? Like We don't think that just because God is all-powerful that he can... Uh, he can make a square circle, right? We don't just because God is all powerful doesn't mean He can make an object that could tra travel north south. Uh, just because you can put two words together doesn't mean that that's a thing in reality, right? And and logic uh, basically bears this out. Uh, I can say that someone can travel north south. I can say there's a square circle. I can utter those words together. But I can't conceive of either one of those things because it's a logical contradiction. So we don't, and that's what we think, that's what we're saying here is you can't force someone to freely choose something. Does that make sense? It would be a logical contradiction. And just because I can say forcing someone to freely choose something doesn't mean that that's actually something that is even possible to exist in reality. Okay. Um, I mean, there have been some monotheists, philosophers, theologians, who have thought that maybe, you know, since God is the author of, uh, of history, it's possible that maybe he could have uh, made a world where everybody freely chose to do good. But no one says that God forces people to choose the good. Does that make sense? Because that would be a, a contradiction. So I would say even those theists who believe that God could have made a world where everyone freely chose the good, uh, even those theists aren't going to say that God is forcing them to do it. Um, but anyways, because this is a bit more of a beginning uh, lecture, I don't want to get into the debate on God and free will and causation, okay? Uh, at the very least, let's just say this. You know, to say that God could force someone to freely choose the good would be a contradiction. And that's just, that's just a, it is what it is. It's a contradiction. At the very least, God uh, making a world with human beings in it with free will um, is going to entail at least the logical possibility that they're going to choose uh, bad actions. Okay. So yes, uh, I just, I, I didn't want to move on without mentioning that. I, I forgot to say that and I didn't want to, to leave that out. Okay. So th that, but that, like I said, that usually the free will defense is usually answering, uh, why is there bad? Why do people mistreat each other in this world? But you're still left with this question of, well, why do people die? Why do people get diseases? Why did a tornado tear my house down? You know, all sorts of stuff, and especially in these in this day and age, uh, in uh, in in the last decade or so, we've seen a lot of a uh, lot of things that people would classify as natural evil, right? And uh, something I th I would say probably one of the biggest answers that's that's been out there for this type of evil is what's called the natural order defense, and I have this defined as. The solution that God must create a world with order to carry out some of his purposes. For example, a world without order would be a world in which free will is meaningless. 
Okay, so now there's there's different variations on the natural order defense. Different theists have argued that God needs to order, make the world orderly for different reasons. I wanted to emphasize just a few of those. Okay, um, especially in light of human free with human beings with free will, some theists have argued that it makes sense that God would create. A universe that is run, you know, whenever I talk about an orderly universe, I mean a universe ran by natural laws. You know, when we look in the world, it seems like at least the laws themselves, the, the way physical reality operates, um, it's it looks impersonal in the sense that uh, things just happen. There's a rule about it. It always happens the same. It doesn't matter you know say so like say a train is is going down some train tracks because of the quote unquote laws of nature if the, if someone doesn't stop the train it's just going to keep going it doesn't matter if uh it doesn't matter if you put a uh, an object on the tracks like a, a inanimate object like a, a desk it doesn't matter if you put an animal on the tracks it doesn't matter if you put an innocent human being like a baby on the tracks it doesn't matter if you put a criminal on the tracks because the laws of nature are more of these impersonal rules, I mean, I would say, you know, if we get into philosophical theology or natural philosophy, I would argue that, you know, you can't have rules without a rule maker. But because they are rules themselves, and and there's there's they're kind of impersonal rules, you know, like almost mathematical relations, um, they just happen because that's the rule, right? So it's the rules aren't going to change because of the situation. Well, uh, some people, some monotheists have argued that if God wants to have a universe with free will beings in it, uh, beings that can make good and bad choices that are morally relevant choices, then God needs to order the universe uh, with natural laws, right? Because say there's a God makes a universe where everything is great all the time and no one's going to die. You know, I, I could take a gun. I could, whether we could go back to my train example, I could get in a train and want to ch- kill a bunch of people. So uh, I, maybe I do something to trap people on the train tracks, or maybe I I uh, I I fiddle with the warning system so people don't and I don't warn them that I'm coming. So people are driving over the tracks and they didn't realize I was coming. But in this world, right before I'm about to hit a person or hit a car or kill somebody with a train, uh, the rules, the laws of nature, they're not really laws because uh, that person either bounces off the train like a, like a, uh, you know, like a beach ball, <laughs> or they just they all they just magically get transported out of the way. Uh, you know, so we're talking about a world where nobody ever gets hurt because uh, the the way reality is set up is that it, it seems to appear to be orderly, but if someone's about to get hurt, then all of a sudden they just magically don't get hurt. You know, say I take a gun and I shoot some, I try to shoot someone in the head and, it, and the bullet just turns into a daisy or, or bubbles, right? Or, or, um, or it just goes through them magically, even though they're both the bullet and them are solid. You can think of all sorts of scenarios. Uh, maybe whenever a, a tornado is about to hit a house, it always just magically dissipates. Um, monotheists have argued that if we lived in a world like this, then none of our choices actually would have moral relevance. I could try to kill people all day, but it would never work. Uh, people, you know, and so you couldn't really do true evil. You couldn't do, uh, 
good. I mean, you, I guess you could do good, but you could never do evil. So what's the point? Do you know what I'm saying? So monotheists have argued that an orderly world is one in which our moral choices are actually relevant. Uh, so if God wants to have beings in his image who are doing the right thing, it needs to be possible for you to do the wrong thing. And, and uh, if you live in this uh, bumper car universe, then uh, it's not actually going to be possible to do evil. So that wouldn't make sense. Another interesting take on this I've heard is that, um, oh, and I think we mentioned this in my lecture on, on uh, the possibility of miracles. Because uh, we were talking about the distinction, you know, we're talking about the definition of what a miracle is, and what we didn't want to say is that it's a breaking of a law of nature. We didn't want to say that as Christians we're saying that a miracle is a breaking of a law of nature, as if a law of nature is something that's unbreakable, right? We just said that the laws of nature are more like regularities than anything. Because if God created the universe, sustains its existence, and makes the rules, then he can step into history. He can step into reality and uh, and make things happen in a way that they don't usually happen, right? And But why would he want to make an orderly universe? Well, because if he wants to talk to people every once in a while, if he wants to contact human beings, you know, like special revelation where he, where he talks to Moses through a burning bush or he appears to people uh, in their visions or whatever. If the universe isn't orderly, if it's not ran by natural laws, by uh, these regularities, then reality would be really weird and you couldn't tell when God is trying to talk to you because something is happening out of the ordinary like a like a bush burning without it actually uh, you know being destroyed and a voice coming out of it or whatever you know wh whether you want to say that was a vision or not the thing is these things don't usually happen uh, you can't usually tell the future so if you hear a voice telling you the future and it comes to pass you assume it's the maker of the universe right uh, anyways monotheists have argued that uh, God would want to make an orderly universe ran by natural laws so that when he wants to speak to human beings, they know it's him and not something that's natural. Uh, so that's another take on why there needs to be a natural order to things. And with these impersonal rules that govern reality, right? God is causing it all, but he makes these rules and these rules are just what they are. Bad things are going to happen. Another interesting thing I've seen that I wanted to go a little bit more detail on is that uh, given the fact that the, the universe is going to be ran by natural laws, uh, well, well, there's another consideration, okay? And, and I've gotten this, I think other philosophers have, have argued similarly, but specifically I saw in Thomas Aquinas, he argued that uh, the, any world that God would create has to be a finite world. <laughs> right um and he he argued this because he agreed with other philosophers who uh who argued that there can't be a infinite quantity of anything in reality we actually talked about this if you want to go back to our lecture on uh, the kalam cosmological argument there's there's reasons for arguing and believing that you can't have an infinite amount of anything in reality i mean like an infinite physical quantity um and uh, Aquinas agreed that you can't have an actually infinite amount of something physical. And uh, what he what he used to uh, what he concluded from that is that any world that God creates is going to be finite, right? 
Another thing that he argued is that only God is infinitely perfect. So you can't, you know, any world that God's going to create is going to fall infinitely short of his perfection. So that's another consideration. It's like one thing that Aquinas pointed out was that any world you can conceive of, you could imagine another world that had one more good thing in it. But you can't ever get to that world that has an infinite number of good things in it because um, then that would be an infinite quantity, but you can't have that. So anyways, uh, what he concluded was that any world that God creates is going to be finite. And one thing that we can we can take from that uh, observation, that philosophical idea, is that any world that God creates is, is going to be finite. So he's going to need to order that world, right? Uh, it's going to have, but a, a major uh a major thing to take away from that, though, is that any since it's going to be finite, it's going to have a limited amount of resources. So with these considerations that God needs to make an orderly world, that it's going to be a finite world, you're going to get a world that looks a lot like what we have, right? A finite world that's ran by natural laws. Uh, an interesting thing that I've seen comes from scholars uh, at uh, Reasons to Believe. If you've ever heard of Reasons to Believe. It's a science faith ministry. Uh, it's ran by scholars like Hugh Ross. It was founded by Hugh Ross, Dr. Hugh Ross, and it's, uh, it's got scholars like Jeff Zwierink, Fazal Rana, and these are scientists of various fields who um, look at uh, contemporary scientific issues, and they're always, you know, they're always uh, commenting on things that are happening in contemporary science but they they filter this through their christian worldview and they they talk about how you know a big part of the ministry is how science and faith cohere um well anyways i went to their website to get some points for this lecture so uh, i'll be mentioning uh, the the blog post where i got some of the stuff but one thing that they talk about is how it looks like even things that people think of to be quote-unquote natural evils, things that shouldn't exist in the world, when you actually look at it from the study of ecology, you discover that uh, some things that people think are bad are actually play a pivotal role in making the earth, um, uh, po making life possible on earth. So I wanted to talk about a few of these just to give you examples of more of a really modern contemporary natural order defense where we kind of take these uh, older ideas and update them with contemporary science to show that, yeah, uh, you know, it looks like the world we live in is finely tuned. Uh, it's, it's amazing that life exists on it, especially it's amazing that, uh, that self-aware and higher forms of life like human beings exist on it. And it seems like even the things that we think are bad, they're there for a reason. So uh, let me, what I was going to do is actually just read some quotes uh, from articles from blog posts that I found on the Reasons to Believe website. And that website is reasons.org, by the way, if you're looking, uh, if you want to check these out in more detail. But yeah, the, the first article I wanted to uh, take um, some, and what I'm going to be doing, like I said, is, is reading basically uh, sections, uh, sections of quotes from these articles. The first article was a blog post by Dave Rogstad titled, What If There Were No Hurricanes? And this is from the Reasons to Believe website. Uh, Rogstad argues that her, it's, it looks like when we look at the study of ecology, hurricanes and tornadoes actually um, make it so that life is possible on the earth. 
without uh, hurricanes and tornadoes uh, provide sufficient rainfall to water the earth. They provide plant fertilizer from lightning. They provide pruning of forests and prairies, and they provide drought-breaking rainfall. Let me read you the selection from his article. Scientific evidence suggests that the Earth's rotation speed probably has the greatest effect on the number and intensity of storms the planet generates each year. If its rate were to change by as little as two hours per day, slowing from 24 to 26 hours, the number of violent storms, including thunderstorms and hurricanes, would certainly decrease. On the other hand, a faster rotation rate would result in more numerous and far more devastating storms. Perhaps hurricanes might disappear altogether, so humans would live in a much more benign environment, or would they? There is evidence that a planet without hurricanes, as devastating as they are, may not represent an improvement. Earth derives a number of benefits from massive thunderstorms, of which hurricanes are the most severe, including these five. 1. Sufficient rainfall to water the Earth. Major parts of the world rely on heavy storms to supply water for life's basic needs. 2. Plant fertilizer from lightning. Nitrogen fixing by lightning con uh, converts some of the nitrogen in the air into a form that plants can use for food. Without it, many plants could not thrive, and plants are the foundation of humanity's food chain. 3. Pruning of forests and prairies from lightning fires. Fires help maintain the diverse life forms needed for a stable ecology naturally by clearing away old growth and spurring new plant growth required for food. 4. Pruning of forests by strong winds. In addition to fires, winds uproot weaker trees and open up the forest canopy for a greater diversity of plants and animals. And finally, 5. Drought-breaking rainfall. Severe storms such as hurricanes called uh, monsoons, typhoons, or cyclones in other parts of the world provide immediate ample water supplies to end years of drought. Earth's rotation speed is fast enough to provide the just right quantity and magnitude of thunderstorms to sustain a rich diversity of life, but with that provision come occasional hurricanes in certain areas, storms with locally tragic effects. Rather than charging God with poor design or asserting that he does not exist or care, perhaps the best response would be to do research and supply the answers and means to better protect people living in hurricane-prone regions. So what Rogstad is saying is that, uh, you know, the Earth's rotation speed is one thing that kind of uh, that, that uh, goes into how many storms we have. They think if it, if it rotated a little bit faster, we would have more storms. If it rotated slower, we'd have less storms. And of course, if we had more storms, life would be harder on us. If we had less storms, it would be easier on us. But if it had less storms, what they're saying is that the earth wouldn't have sufficient rainfall uh, to water it, to for plant fertilizer, and to prune forests, and to break droughts. So um, it, it looks like the earth, the rotation speed, and, all, and a bunch of other factors go into being at just the right amounts to provide a planet uh, that uh, not only was conducive to life arising, but also uh, sustains us for as long as it has for human beings to uh, flourish here. So uh, it looks like even though we don't like hurricanes and tornadoes, um, they actually make it possible for us to live. Uh, the same thing goes with earthquakes. So this is another um, blog post from Dave Rogstad uh, titled, Another benefit for life in earthquakes, and this is this is another blog post I took from Reasons to Believe, which is uh, you can be you can find it at reasons.org. Um, here, 
Rockstad says that earthquakes provide the right levels of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, a way to maintain nutrient levels on land, and the means for the early earth to support a diverse abundance of life. So let's look at these. And again, I'm just I'm, from from here. I'm going to be reading a quote from his article. He says, "Earthquakes are a byproduct of plate tectonics, a theory in geology developed in recent years for explaining motions near the surface of the Earth." One of the benefits from plate tectonics is that Earth maintains the right levels of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere to compensate for the sun's increasing luminosity. This is accomplished by what is called the carbonate silicate cycle. CO2 is removed from the atmosphere through weathering. The weathered products are eventually drawn into the Earth's interior via via plate tectonics. Processes inside the Earth's interior release the CO2 back into the atmosphere via volcanoes. While all aspects of this mechanism are not yet fully understood, it has been instrumental in providing a stable environment for life on the Earth for billions of years. Without earthquakes, for example, life essential nutrients would erode off the continents and accumulate in the oceans and eventually cause land creatures to starve. Tectonic activity helps recycle these nutrients back onto the continents. Turns out, plate tectonics played an important role in early Earth's history as well. According to astrophysicist Jeff Zwierink, active and widespread tectonics, quote, allowed a youthful Earth to support diverse abundant life, unquote. The diverse abundant life then, quote, quickly transformed Earth's surface into an environment safe for advanced life, unquote. Advanced life that would eventually be jolted out of bed at four in the morning, shaken but grateful that the floating plates are doing precisely what they are designed to do. So, and that's the end of Rogstad's quotes. And actually, some of those were from an article uh, titled, What If There Were No Hurricanes? And, and other portions of those quotes were from the article I have listed here on my slide, Another Benefit for Life in Earthquakes. But again, this is another thing that they see, they say seems to be fine-tuned for life. If there were more earthquakes, obviously we wouldn't be here because there'd be earthquakes all the time. and and we Or at least we couldn't have civilization probably. And maybe we'd all be dead because we the earth would be shaking all the time. Um, maybe there'd be more volcanoes, all sorts of th- bad things for us, right? But if there's less volcanoes, that becomes a problem because, like we said, earthquakes provide um, this mechanism that helps uh, recycle carbon dioxide so we can have the right uh, oxygen levels. It, they maintain nutrient levels on the land so we couldn't have the amount of biodiversity and plant life like we do, which would obviously be terrible for agriculture and, uh, again, for oxygen and other things like that and for animal life, uh, not to mention us. So uh, it's without earthquakes, we wouldn't be here is another point. And and this one, especially this last point I wanted to, I wanted to talk about from uh, Reasons to Believe Scholars. This one is coming from a, a blog post from Hugh Ross titled Viruses and God's Good Designs. It turns out that we think that viruses also are necessary for life on earth. They provide good things that help us live. So although usually, especially in this day and age with COVID-19 and all sorts of stuff, we think of the word virus and we automatically think of something terrible that shouldn't exist. turns out that without viruses, we wouldn't be here. So I wanted to read some more quotes from uh, from Reasons to Believe Scholars. This one comes from Hugh Ross in Viruses and God's Good Designs on the Reasons.org website. D- Dr. Ross says, Life forms on Earth larger and more complex than microbes would be impossible without an abundance of viruses. 
Without viruses, bacteria would multiply and within a relatively short time period occupy every niche and cranny on Earth's surface. The planet would become a giant bacterial slime ball. Those sextillions of bacteria would consume all the resources essential for life and die. Viruses keep Earth's bacterial population in check. They break up and kill bacteria at the just right rates and in the just right locations so as to maintain a population and diversity of bacteria that is optimal for both the bacteria and for all the other life forms. It is important to note that all multicellular life depends on bacteria being present at the optimal population level and optimal diversity. We wouldn't be here without viruses. A high human population and advanced global civilization would not be possible without Earth's water cycle providing copious amounts of precipitation all over the continental land masses. All the excuse me, all the precipitation components, however, require microscopic seeds to form. In most environments, the most important seeds for precipitation are viruses and bacterial fragments resulting from viral attacks. Wind carries these seeds into the atmosphere where ice crystals form around them, liquid water clumps onto the ice crystals, making them progressively larger. These augmented ice crystals turn into rain, snow, or other forms of participation and fall to the ground. While dust and particles of soot can also serve as seeds or nuclei for the formation of raindrops and snowflakes, viruses and bacterial fragments allow the initial ice crystals to form at warmer temperatures. We would not have nearly sufficient precipitation over a sufficiently broad area to sustain our agriculture and civilization if it were not for viruses. Viruses also play a crucial role in Earth's carbon cycle. They and the bacterial fragments they create are carbon, uh, carbonaceous substances. Through their role in precipitation, they collect as vast carbonaceous sheets on the surfaces of the world's oceans. These sheets are mats of viruses and bacterial fragments sink slowly and eventually land on the ocean floors. As they are sinking, they provide important nutrients for deep sea and benthic life. Plate tectonics drive much of the viral and bacterial fragments into Earth's crust and mantle where some of that carbonaceous materials return to the atmosphere through volcanic eruptions. Thanks to Earth's aggressive carbon cycle, the global environment enjoys a great diversity of life and has continual access to the nutrients it needs. Earth's carbon cycle also plays a critical role in regulating the amount of carbon dioxide and methane in the atmosphere. Thanks to viruses, we have the carbon cycle running at the rate we need and the amounts of atmospheric greenhouse gases that are optimal for our existence and our civilization. So that's the end of uh, Dr. Ross's quote. And again, here, you, here you, you find it. What we think of something as a quote-unquote evil, something that shouldn't exist, when we look closer to the study of um, virology, you know, all the, all the specific ones, but especially the study of ecology, how all these systems in nature come together to make a life-producing, life-conducive uh, environment, we find that viruses actually play a crucial role in making the world uh, ready and sustainable for advanced life. Uh, Dr. Ross is pointing out that without viruses, the world's bacteria population would consume everything and then it would die out and then everything would be dead. Without viruses, uh, we wouldn't have the water cycle that we need for advanced life and civilization. And without viruses, we wouldn't have the carbon cycle that we need to make a diversity of life possible. So, um, what we think of as something that shouldn't exist actually turns out that if it didn't exist, we wouldn't be here. <laughs> and, and what we're saying is that this seems to be scientific confirmation of the natural order defense. 
any world that God wants to create needs to have natural, it needs to be orderly. This makes uh, morality possible, or at least a, a morally relevant free choice is possible. And it makes it possible for us to know if God is wanting to talk to us because everything's not random or magical. Uh, everything seems to be natural. And then when you see something supernatural, you realize it's from God uh, in, in, in certain circumstances. And But also, uh, any world that God's going to create isn't going to be infinite. It's going to be finite. So there's going to be a limited amount of resources. And when you have God making a universe that's finite and orderly, you're just going to have a, a world that looks like ours, and probably you're going to see things like what we see. Uh, the 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 world is designed to basically recycle everything and and, and keep the the cycle of life going, right? So you need earthquakes, you need viruses, and all these other things that kind of destroy certain things in the uh, in the as a means to uh, recycle everything and to keep it uh, sustainable, right? So. Uh, what what we think of as bad things actually turn out to be good things that are making life uh, possible. But not only uh, regular, like not only life itself, but advanced life possible. Um, also, the natural order defense, you can kind of combine it with the free will defense to say that in a lot of cases, too, sometimes free will amplifies natural evils, right? It's human free choice. We're the ones who are building our cities and our in our houses on fault lines or in hurricane zones. Uh, so, you know, why did God destroy my house with a hurricane? Well, God didn't tell you to build your house where that hurricane was going to happen, did he? Also, human corruption. Uh, uh, I think I've, I've heard this from Fazal Rana at Reasons to Believe. He emphasizes that uh, deaths from hurricanes and other natural disasters uh, are often... Uh, amplified. There's more of them in countries where the government is corrupt and they're spending all the money on themselves and not spending on it and preparing uh, the the population for natural disasters and or, uh, or early warning systems, right? So uh, not only do we think that God has reasons for um, creating the world like he did, but also uh, sometimes uh, human free choices can amplify these natural evils. You know, there's a debate over whether the virus, the COVID-19, was uh, due to chance or, uh, you know, just something that was completely natural, or was it man-made? So, you know, maybe that's a thing too. So, uh, usually uh, a combination of free will and natural order defense is going to be a really strong way to answer these arguments. Another one that I mentioned, though, let's move on to the next one, soul-making theodicy. Um, in the, in the uh, philosophy of religion, uh, a philosopher really famous for making a soul-making th- uh, defense or theodicy is the philosopher named John Hicks. Uh, excuse me, John Hick. It's, it doesn't have an S, especially in his book, uh, Evil and the God of Love. But soul-making theodicy is this idea that without uh, evil whether it's moral evil or natural evil, you can't really produce certain, you can't have a spiritual and moral development. Um, so the possibility, right? And some people have, argued, have mentioned this in, in the debate over evil and, and other things. They'll just mention that you can't have, I think we talked about this too when we were talking about uh, J.L. Mackey's logical problem because he mentioned that. 
like you can't have bravery if there's no such thing as danger, right? Uh, but that that's kind of what's going into this. But one thing that that Hick uh, emphasized was that you know a lot of uh, people that make the that formulate problems of evil make it seem like if God was all knowing, all powerful, all good, then we would just live in this paradise of a universe where nobody ever got hurt ever. Um, and I actually, I'm sorry I've been quoting and reading from people so much. I usually don't do that if you've been listening to this series. But I just love uh, the quote from Hick so much that I want to read this. He explains, Anti-theistic writers almost invariably assume a conception of the divine purpose, which is contrary to the Christian conception. They assume that the purpose of a loving God must be to create a hedonistic paradise, and therefore to the extent that the world is other than other than this, it proves to them that God is either not loving enough or not powerful enough to create such a world. They think of God's relation to the earth on the model of a human be- being building a cage for a pet animal to dwell in. If he is humane, he will naturally make his pet's quarters as pleasant and healthful as he can. Any respect in which the cage falls short of the veterinarian's ideal and contains possibilities of accident or disease is evidence of either limited benevolence or limited means or both. Those who use the problem of evil as an argument against belief in God almost invariably think of the world in this kind of way. Hick is pointing out that people who argue that the existence of evil is evidence against the existence of God seem to have a non-Christian idea of what God, who God is, right? Um, the Bible doesn't tell us that God made the world so we could all uh, live these perfect, enjoyable lives uh, filled with pleasure all the time. Uh, what you'll see in the next lecture that's very different from that. Uh, so, you know, if, if the Bible said that, that God is all-powerful, all-good, all-knowing, and he wants us to be happy all the time, then when we see evil in the world, that would be evidence against the Christian scriptures. But the, the Christianity doesn't teach that. Uh, no one has really in the history of the church, you don't ever see anybody teach that God wants it to be a paradise all the time. Of course, you've seen passages that indicate that it will be like that eventually. But what Hick pointed out was that it seems like, at least for now, God wants us to mature as individuals. He doesn't uh, He doesn't want to have, and, and that's one thing that, that Hick pointed out. Imagine a world similar to the one that I was describing earlier whenever I was giving an example of a world where you magically can't get hurt. If someone shoots at someone else, the bullet turns into a bubble or it turns into a daisy. Um, imagine a world like that where nothing, nobody can ever get hurt. No one can ever go hungry. Um, it, this, given the human nature, at least the, the, what we see now and the way human beings act, it seems like, and you, you'll especially know this if you have kids, it seems like a world where everybody had everything they ever wanted. You just end up with a bunch of spoiled brats. Um, you know, Hick pointed out, a lot of people seem to think of God as being this divine pet owner. He just wanted some pets and he wanted them to be happy. So if he's going to create something, it would be like this, this area where they are always happy and never getting hurt. Uh, but that's not what the Bible teaches. And that's not what we see in reality. Instead, we see this world where you do need bravery. You do need uh, love and, and um, empathy and all these other things that can't really, well, you can have love without without evil, but uh, empathy, um, bravery, all these virtues that, that couldn't exist without evil, um, 
it looks like that we live in a world more like that, and that's kind of what the Bible indicates. And also the Bible indicates that God is more of a father, more of a parent figure to humanity rather than a divine pet owner. And what, what Hick pointed out was that if God wants people to mature, then that entails that he would need to allow um, certain moral, maybe moral evils and certain uh, natural evils to make that happen. Okay. So, um, you know, like I said, uh, you don't necessarily have to say, you don't have to just pick one of those. Maybe you choose, maybe you can use every single one of them whenever you're answering, uh, whenever you're trying to tell people why you think evil exists in the world. But what I wanted to do now is quickly try to go back to these problems of evil that we talked about in the last lecture and just show specifically where these uh, kind of answer these problems, okay? If you remember, we talked about the logical problem of evil from J.L. Mackey. He argued that uh, monotheism is internally incoherent because it entails that God is omnipotent, holy good, yet evil exists. And assuming that a good omnipotent thing eliminates evil completely, uh, this forms a contradiction, so... So uh, monotheism is internally incoherent. Well, hopefully, as you just saw when we were talking about all these theodicies, uh, it doesn't seem like there is a logical contradiction uh, with God being all good, all powerful, and evil existing, right? The one thing that we, the one premise that we're basically going after is premise number four, right? Because just like Mackey said, we don't want to give up premise one, two, and three. We don't want to pretend like evil doesn't exist. And we don't want to say that God is not all-powerful. We don't want to say that God is not wholly good. What we take issue with is premise four. A good omnipotent thing eliminates evil completely, right? Uh, if you remember from that lecture, Mackey talked about several solutions that he thought were fallacious. Uh, evil is necessary, greater good defense, greater good defense, variation, free will defense. Kind of what we've talked about touches on a lot of, of what he went into. But if you remember... A lot of times what he said was, if you say that reality has to be this way, it looks like you're limiting God's power. And what I wanted to do was emphasize that we're not limiting God's power. We're just being logically uh, consistent. Does that make sense? What Mackey might say is that if if you're saying that free will makes it so that God can't have a world where everybody does good... It looks like you're limiting God's power. But what what I've pointed out already, and this is why we would reject premise four, is that God can allow evil. Uh, at the very least, let's say this, and this is why you would kind of call it a free will defense. At the very least, if it truly is free will, it's at least logically possible that God would have a free will being who chose to do evil right? Even God being all-powerful, it just, it would be a contradiction to say that he guarantees that he forces everyone to do good. You know, I don't want to get into the debate over whether, whether we think he could create a world where everybody does good, but even people, like I said, even theists who believe that God could create a reality where everyone freely chooses the good, even those theists are going to say it's a logical possibility that those people in that universe um, could do evil, even though they never, they, even though they never did, right? Because it's not true free will if there's only one outcome that's guaranteed. That's guaranteed. So, uh, and and again, this gets a lot, lot more complicated when you go deeper into the study. 
of uh, God's knowledge and free will and all that. But a lot of times what we say is just because God knows something that's going to happen, that knowledge of what's going to happen doesn't necessarily isn't that's not all the causality that goes into it. Just because God's knowledge is is uh, chronologically prior to something happening doesn't mean that it's that that knowledge is the 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 only cause of that person doing that thing. But anyways, what we're saying is at the very least, if it truly is free will, which which Christianity says it is, you know, we're looking at what Christianity claims about the world, what monotheism claims about the world, and monotheism is saying that human beings have free will. So if human beings truly have free will, that means that they logically can do bad things. It doesn't guarantee that they're only going to do good things. Okay, so it's at least not a logical contradiction. And on the street, well, we'll um, we'll talk about at the like I said at the end of this, I'm going to give you practical tips on talking, sharing this with people. Uh, so I just wanted to point out that's that's why we would, we would re- we would reject premise four and say a good omnipotent. You know, one thing that he doesn't say is that a good omnipotent thing eliminates evil completely right now, right? Christianity says that God will eliminate evil completely eventually. But uh, what we're saying is that it's not, uh, for one, it's not a logical contradiction to say that evil is possible because people could choose, if they truly had free will, they could choose to do bad. Uh, But also, just because someone does bad today, that doesn't mean that God can't allow them to do that, um, he is eventually going to eliminate evil, but he's he's biding his time right now. Um, so anyways, in the next in the next lecture I'm going to go into why I think God is is biding his time. So we'll we'll show you the reasons why uh, the Bible provides an even better, a more stronger, like a, a true theodicy that explains the whole whole reason why God is doing this. But anyways, for now what we're saying is when you think about these these things that we talked about, free will, greater good, uh, natural order, we're saying that it's it. There's no logical contradiction in saying that God is is all good, and all powerful, yet evil exists. And, but what would we do with the uh, the evidential problem? You know, maybe someone says, "Okay, that's fine. Uh, maybe it's not a logical contradiction." But look at the amount of evil in the world. We wouldn't expect this much evil if God is all good, all powerful. Uh, well, this is where we get into what's called skeptical theism. Okay, I wanted to mention something called skeptical theism because this is something, it brings out a great point when people try to use the evidential problem, okay? Um, so uh, I've got a definition from an uh, article in the Internet Encyclopedia of Philosophy, which is a free resource for philosophy, by the way. It's a online, peer-reviewed uh resource for philosophy called the Internet Encyclopedia of Philosophy. Anyways, this article is written by Justin Breyer titled Skeptical Theism, and he defines skeptical theism as the view that God exists, but that we should be skeptical of our ability to discern God's reasons for acting or refraining from acting in any particular instance. I've always thought skeptical theism sounds funny because it almost sounds like a contradiction. You know, usually in everyday speech, someone who says they're a skeptic, a lot of times they that's they that's a synonymous with being an atheist. So it's almost like whenever I hear skeptical theism, it makes me think of like a like an atheistic theist, and it sounds like a contradiction. But anyways, skeptical theism is this idea that we should be skeptical of our ability to know why God does things specifically, like know all the reasons that go into one thing that God allows in reality. Does that make sense? Specifically, skeptical theism is is used to try to emphasize that 
especially it comes out of this debate really it, it all came out of this this uh, conversation that was started by William Rowe William Rowe if you remember so here's his evidential problem again William Rowe's uh, evidential problem of evil says there exist instances of intense suffering which an omnipotent omniscient being could have prevented without thereby losing some greater good or permitting some evil equally bad or worse Two, an omniscient holy good being would prevent the occurrence of any intense suffering it could, unless it could not do so without hereby losing some greater good or permitting some evil equally bad or worse. Three, therefore, there does not exist an omnipotent, omniscient, holy good being. Rose's entire point was that um, if you if there is some suffering or some evil in the world, God would only allow it for some good reason, and that reason would either be to prevent an equal or worse evil from happening or to bring about a greater good. And what Roe thought was that you see instances of evil that you can't you can't see any reason for that for for God allowing that. And we talked about Roe's example of a a fawn getting burned in a forest fire and, and suffering for the course of three or four days before it died. Roe would say, "What is the point in all that?" Okay. Well, uh, this inference that because I can't see a reason for something happening, there must not be a reason is what philosophers in this debate have called the no inference. Um, and the no inference I have defined as the conclusion that if someone cannot see or think of a reason for God to allow an instance of evil, then there must not be a reason for, for God allowing it. That's a very specific definition of a no inference that comes from this debate over the, the evidential problem of evil. But a no inference doesn't have to just be on God and, and evil. A no inference can be, if I don't see something, then it likely doesn't exist, right? In this debate, what the what the 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 person bringing the evidential problem of evil is saying is that I can't see a reason for God allowing this type of suffering. Therefore, there must not be a reason. Okay. Now, what the skeptical theist says is that we're not in the position to make a noceum inference in regard to God allowing certain types of evil. Does that make sense? Um. I, I, I really love this point, and I don't know where he got it. I have a, a good friend uh, who works at Kingdom Preparatory Academy, by the way. Uh, his name is Dr. John DePoe, and, and he I first heard this example from him. I don't know if he made it up um, or if he got it from the debate on the problem of evil. I don't specialize in skeptical theism, so I, um, and he, he's gotten a lot more into skeptical theism than I have, so I, he probably got it from that debate. But any, either way, I got this from him. But I've, I've always loved this example. Uh, he, he said, uh, talking about the no CM inference, the no CM inference can be a good thing, right? If you go into a garage, for example, and you're looking for a full-size pickup truck, and you look and you don't see, some, you don't see the pickup truck in the garage, you are uh, justified in believing that there is no truck there, right? It makes sense. I don't see a truck, so there's not a truck in this garage. Now, but let's say that you're looking for a flea, or let's say that you're looking for uh, some kind of virus. But all you ha- but you don't have any special equipment to look at a, at a close level. All you can do is just look around the, the garage with your eyes. Uh, you know, you can maybe even like stoop down onto the floor and look really hard. But you don't have any special equipment that can look at a, at a smaller, more zoomed-in level. Now, if you're looking for a flea or some virus, and you say, well, I don't see one in this garage, therefore that must not be here, 
we wouldn't we wouldn't say that that was a good inference, would we? We wouldn't say it was like the the inference that you made whenever you couldn't see the truck, therefore the truck isn't there. The problem is you your eyes aren't made to see things at that level, at that microscopic level. So it would be a bad inference to say that you don't see any fleas or you don't see any viruses, therefore they're not in the garage. Well, turn this back to this debate on uh, on reasons for God allowing suffering to occur in the world, and we point out that God is thought to be uh, all-knowing, right? We've got biblical reasons for believing that God is all-knowing. We've got philosophical reasons for believing that God is all-knowing. You know, like how, at the very least, God created everything and God sustains an existence. He he's he knows everything, right? You can't sustain something in existence without knowing it. Well, anyways, um, if God is all-knowing, he knows all of history. He knows he has a, a, a much better knowledge of reality than we do. You know, this, just to take a biblical example, this reminds me of the biblical story of, of Joseph, right? Um, Joseph was sold into slavery to Egypt. Uh, throughout Joseph's life, he had no idea what was going on, but eventually he realized that God allowed him to be sold into slavery and be separated from his family. Something really great came out of that. Uh, if Joseph hadn't been sold into slavery, we think that maybe all of Israel would have been wiped out by famine. But God allowed him to go through that suffering and go through that hardship for a good reason. That's just that's just one instance in one person's life. But it happened over the course of many years. The thing is, whenever we see some type of suffering, for all we know, what with, with our limited experience and our, our limited existence in just these few years on earth... Maybe it looks, maybe even our entire lifetime, we'd never see some good come out of any particular suffering. But we're not, we're not all knowing, right? We don't know all of history. We don't know uh, how things, how causalities, you know, we can't predict the weather. We can only predict it to a certain extent, but God is all knowing. So God knows the weather uh, just to, to make a natural example. But God also knows all of our free will choices. God knows uh, at, at a perfect level how things are, are are affecting each other in reality and what good could come out of suffering. He's got access to that. We don't. So um, when you think about our ability to, to, to understand what good is coming out of some suffering or what equal uh, bad or worse bad is being um, prevented from some suffering, we don't have access to it. In fact, I would say that my ability to know uh, God's reason for allowing some evil is is worse than my ability to spot a flea in a garage, right? So <laughs> um, I have even less access to that than I would finding a flea in a garage with my naked eye. So uh, the no seeum inference, what we're we want to point out is that if the uh, if the atheist or whoever's bringing up this type of problem of evil is trying to argue number one premise one from Roe. There exist instances of intense suffering which an omniscient, omnipotent being could have prevented without thereby losing some good or permitting some evil equally bad or worse. What we're saying is they they aren't justified in believing that's the case because they're not omniscient. If they were, then maybe they could make this uh, this inference, but they're not. They don't have access to all of history and, and the way reality works on a, on, a, on a very specific causal level like God does. So they can't they're not justified in holding premise one. There's no way they can prove that. 
So we just don't think that's a good argument. Okay, so that's that's how uh, skeptical theism answers uh, at least William Rowe's evidential problem of evil. I also wanted to usually when you get into skeptical theism, they mainly talk about how you can't do uh, uh, atheists aren't justified in holding premise to premise one. But I also wanted to reemphasize something that Rowe, William Rowe himself said. There's that there's that direct solution to his evidential problem of evil, but he also mentioned a indirect solution to the problem of evil, where you kind of you take the the uh, conclusion of uh, you take the uh, the opposite of the conclusion of his uh, problem of evil, and you put that as the first premise. But you then you take the opposite of the first premise, and you put that as the conclusion, and you end up with this thing. Say, you end up with this indirect solution saying there exists an omniscient, omniscient, holy good being, and premise two stays the same. A, a being like that wouldn't pr- allow evil unless it was for a good reason. Therefore, it is not the case that there exist instances of gratuitous suffering. Well, I agree with him that we can do that. Uh, I mean, you know, it's good to bring up theodicies and reasons why we think God would allow evil, but that's the thing. The Bible talks about God as an omniscient, holy, good being. And I just gave you through the three-step apologetic method, right? I just gave you a non-circular way to show that the Bible is the inerrant, inspired word of God. So if you if you have all these reasons to believe that the Bible is inspired and the Bible talks about God as an omniscient, omniscient holy, good being, and the Bible also describes evil happening in the world, we would just say that that's just the way reality is, right? So I also wanted to point that out. I mean... It would be hard to go through the whole three-step apologetic method and out on the street in just one go. But uh, I wanted to, to emphasize to you that you have the resources available to do the indirect solution, to know that there is a good, good, holy, uh, a holy good, infinite in, in knowledge and power being called God who created and sustains the world. So we know that he wouldn't allow evil for, for no bad reason. But anyways, uh, really quickly, before we finish, I just wanted to just mention some talking points here. We just went through a lot of stuff, but just to kind of summarize and also to give you just more like talking point style things that you can mention to people on the streets. You know, you want to dig deeper into this and be more knowledgeable so you can answer questions and, 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 and things. But here's the basic points we're making. Why do bad things happen in this world? Why do people mistreat each other? Uh, why are there? Uh, why are people dying natural deaths and 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 dying because of natural uh, disasters, quote unquote? Uh, but you know, how does that? How is that? Uh, how does that make sense if we also believe in an all good, all powerful, all knowing God? Well, just remember these major points that we took from the the free will theodicy, the natural order defense, and uh, skeptical theism. So one thing you want to mention is that God wants a world with free will beings, so evil is possible because God cannot force free will beings to do good, right? It's it, At the very least, it's logically possible that you could do evil if you ha- truly have free will. Also, any world God creates will be finite, so it is likely that natural events like tornadoes, earthquakes, etc. are needed to help maintain the environment, right? Uh, you God, even God, it seems we think that it would even be a logical contradiction for God to be able to make some universe that has an infinite amount of stuff in it. So any any world that God's going to create is going to be finite, so it's going to have limited resources. 
and, and those other things that we said. He's going to want to make it orderly so he knows, so we know when he's talking to us. He's going to want to make it orderly so that our choices can be um, morally uh, relevant, right? So you're going to have a finite world governed with natural laws. It's just, it just makes sense. Uh, he doesn't want a world full of spoiled brats. So he orders the world with natural laws to make our choices morally relevant and to allow us to have soul-making opportunities. Maybe not everybody. You know, some people are aborted. Some people die at early age for other reasons. And they don't, they're not allowed to do the, the um, they're not allowed to do the soul-making process. But the people who do live do go through a soul-making process. The ones who do make it and don't die because of natural or moral evil they, they, they are living in a world where it's possible to make morally, revel, morally relevant choices and to have spiritual maturity. Uh, and then finally, if, if they just say, well, it just looks like there's just no reason why he would allow it. You say, well, I'm not omniscient, you know, and, and you're really not justified in saying that there is no purpose for some specific evil. You just don't know. And uh, seems to be pretty... Um, Seems to be pretty rational to say that we don't have access to the to reality like God does, so we can't make those conclusions. And my, you know, definitely take hold of that garage analogy and use that if you want to explain to somebody uh, why we don't think that we can make these conclusions that God has no reason for allowing some type of suffering. Okay. In the in the next lecture, well, let me talk about that here in a second. I'm going to leave you with quotes and and remind you of the questions for reflection, and then we'll. Um, We'll finish this up. Our quote, again, uh, is from Frank Turek, Stealing from God, Why Atheists Need to Make uh, God to... Why Atheists Need God to Make Their Case. Frank says, Good reason provides all the information we need to see that the very existence of evil is a contradiction for atheism. If evil is real, then atheism is false. And if you remember, our questions for reflection were, Is evil some necessary aspect of reality? I.e., is it possible for there to be a world with no evil? Uh, two, has God promised to eliminate evil? And three, which theodicy do you find the most compelling? I'd love to hear your comments if you have some, so let me know about those. And um, so uh, I also want to, like I do in all these uh, episodes, I wanted to talk about uh, Southern Evangelical Seminary. Uh, you can go visit them at ses.edu. And uh, this is the seminary where I went to. If you if you are interested in these apologetic topics, if you want to learn more about the problem of evil, why we think there's suffering in the world, although God is all good, all powerful, all knowing, I would highly recommend Southern Evangelical Seminary. They have in-person programs and online programs. Almost every single program they offer is online. I think actually every single one is. But they have uh, things as as, uh, as little as uh, online. Excuse me. They have things as, as little as certificates, all the way to a bachelor's degrees, master degrees to PhD. Uh, they have Doctor of Ministry, they have Master of Theology, uh, Master of Divinity, all these things, especially if you're wanting to go into ministry, going to be a pastor, or if you want to go be a scholar. Um, I highly recommend ASCS. They have a big emphasis on apologetics, and if you uh, are interested in any of these topics, I, I recommend going there. Um, also, uh, I recommend Kingdom Preparatory Academy. This is where I first taught a course in uh, Introduction to Apologetics here in Lubbock, Texas, where I got all these slides. Well, uh, most of my slides are from that course. 
Um, and I've, I've modified the original material a little bit. But anyways, Kingdom Preparatory Academy is a classical Christian school here in Lubbock, Texas. It's where my children go. I recommend it. It is a classical school, so uh, they do the classical model, and they uh, it's a high emphasis on critical thinking and teaching students uh, how to think, not what to think. Uh, it is grounded in the Bible and a Christian worldview, so um, there's that going for it as well. And it's a uh, university model, so students don't go to school all week um, in their younger years. They usually just go on Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Friday's optional. It's an enrichment day. Um, in later years, maybe they're going a little bit more, uh, but it gets them prepared to be doing work on their own. And when they get to school, when they get to college, uh, excuse me, when they get to college, it's not a... Um, it's not a big culture shock. So I recommend Kingdom Preparatory Academy if you're interested in a, crash, a classical Christian alternative to education in the Lubbock, Texas area. You can go to kingdomprep.org for, for more information. So yes, in the next lecture, we are going to be talking about the Bible and the problem of evil. I wanted to take you through some uh, concepts from biblical theology to try to show you what basically the main story of the Bible is and how evil fits into this. And it's going to give us an even better answer, a more comprehensive theodicy, a biblical theodicy, if you will, that shows what the Bible has to say about the origin of evil and, and why God allows it and where we're going and what the world is going to be like uh, at, when, uh, in, at the end of days. So I'm looking forward to that lecture, and I hope to see you there, and I hope you have a great day.